Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Listeners episode coming at you. It's been a while since we did one of these. It has been a while. What number are we on? Four, three or four? I think we might be on four. Yeah, but we're we've been doing a lot of pet stories recently, and because of that, I haven't been doing as many listener stories. But we're back in action, baby. We're back, baby. But you know, you got to change it up a little bit. Yeah, keep the people interested. And honestly, I'm very excited for this week's listener stories because they are insane. They're very intense. Okay. So you've curated this list. Oh, absolutely. We have a couple of really big ones, which I love. I really love getting the big detailed stories because most of the time I feel like when people submit stories, they're like, oh, uh, I'm sorry if it's too long. And it's like six sentences long. And I'm like, babe... (laughs) please give me give me (laughs) as much give me all your details yes if i need to i will edit it a little bit and chop some out if i really really have to but for the most part like i'm perfectly fine with having a long story yeah and people are good at writing yeah all the ones we've gotten so far well written yeah all of these are i really love reading your guys' stories and chatting with you and all this stuff and before we jump in to this very first story this person is a part of our Discord, and I, I love Shout it. Her out. I'm so excited to to read her story. I mean, it's scary, and I couldn't yeah. believe it when I read it, but like, oh, really? I just, I love talking on the Discord, and I, I can't stress that oh, enough. I hope so it she made pops me, off. It made me excited. So yeah. let's get into our first story. So this one is from Emma. Hey, Emma. She said, Hey, pals. First off, thanks for making a Patreon and Discord. I moved across the country during the pandemic and have had a hard time making friends. Retweet. Same. So all the pet pics and messages in the Discord make me feel like I have a little community. And I can say that I agree with that. Anyway, I wanted to share my story of being stalked for over a year when I worked as a cashier in 2016. My place of work was at a grocery store, which I will leave unnamed, in downtown Cleveland. This store was built inside a historical building with beautiful century-old murals and stained glass, so it was as much of a tourist attraction as it was a grocery store. I honestly enjoyed my time there for the first half year or so, but things quickly took a turn as I began to fear for my life. I'll try to shorten this very long story as best I can. A couple months into my time as a cashier at the store, an older man, likely in his late 60s or early 70s, introduced himself to me as he noticed I was new. Let's shorten his long name to Ed for the sake of privacy. Ed was a regular at the store who used the large cafe in the middle of the store two or three times a week to write and eat lunch. To give you a visual, the main part of the store consisted of a cafe, a buffet, and several surrounding cash registers. As I worked these registers every shift, I would often see Ed just a few tables away while I checked out groceries. Ed was known by the other cashiers for his kindness and warmth, and for the first few months of my time there, I genuinely thought of him as a friend. He would come to my register at least once a week, bringing me newspaper clippings about animals as I was studying wildlife biology in a nearby college at the time. At first, I thought these quote-unquote gifts were very sweet, but somewhere toward the end of my first year at the store, things got weird. It started at first with him commenting on my appearance, telling me how beautiful I was. I realized that he had memorized my work schedule when I came in on a Tuesday, normally an off day for me, It's such a nice surprise to see you here. You never work Tuesdays. I would regularly see him at the train station that I used. In parentheses, how was he always there when I was? He even told me he had, quote, seen my roommate the other day. I had never told him I had a roommate, but somehow he knew her name. No, he knew her name. Yep. And you didn't tell him? No, that's what she said. Obviously not. Fuck, this sounds like the beginning of you. Yeah, seriously. Although 60 to 7 year old man edition. Yeah. He began to bring me more intimate gifts, such as glass roses and various knickknacks. This culminated in him bringing in his grandmother's wedding ring, saying he wanted me to have it. 
At this point, I decided it was time to tell my manager what was happening. In parentheses, I didn't know how to say fuck politeness back then, or I would have told my manager sooner. Very fair. Yeah, especially because it's an older man. Like, I don't know. And he seemed sweet at first. Yeah. Yeah, you always assume the best, I guess. You know, he seems like not non-threatening. But also, I feel like it's... At first. I feel like it's very common for people to dismiss the concerns of a young Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Especially if the manager knows him, too. Yeah, He's never seen him act weird. Right. And he's known to be, like, kind to everyone, but clearly he's doing very predatory things, and this is an issue, for sure. The wedding ring is over the line. I mean, everything's over the line. Knowing, I mean, knowing her schedule is weird, and then the train station is super weird. Knowing her roommate's name is incredibly scary. Mm -hmm. All the gifts, and then the wedding ring is just like, nope, you know? Yeah. My manager's solution, question mark, he sat down in the store with Ed, literally in the same room as me, while I was cashiering, and told him that he would be banned from the store if he ever spoke to me again. That is one solution. That's a terrible solution, but okay. (laughs) I wasn't saying anything good or bad about it, but damn. Yeah. Then she said, yep, the stalking wasn't enough for him to get banned. I watched Ed watch me through their entire conversation, and I still can't believe this was done while I was in the same room. I wished I had quit my job ahead of time because this made everything worse. Ed would still come in two or three times a week to write in the cafe, but instead of speaking to me, would glare at me across the room the entire time I checked out groceries. I became so afraid of him that my coworkers would cover for me when he came in so I could hide in the bathroom or switch to a register in a different part of the building. This went on for a month or so until he came up to my register, dropped a plastic bag next to me, and walked away. In the plastic bag was a card that read, quote, your manager can't keep us apart. He included, oh he included his phone number and told me to call him and meet him at the nearby art museum. The following week, I quit. I couldn't do it anymore. I remember feeling relieved that I wouldn't have to go to work in fear anymore. A couple of months passed with no incident, and I didn't run into him at the train station anymore. Until one day, I did. I locked eyes with him as I was walking toward my train, and he immediately cornered me and forced a book into my hands. Quote, I know you haven't called me, but that's okay. I wrote something for you. He then told me he loved me. This part makes me feel sick, as I muttered, I love you too, out of fear of retaliation if I didn't say it back. Even though he was an older man, he could have easily overtaken me, a skinny 19-year-old girl with no upper body strength. He turned and walked away, and that was the last time I ever saw him, but the situation got even worse. The book he wrote, and in parentheses says, and PUBLISHED, in all caps, He published it? Yes, was titled with my name. Ed was one of the main characters in this book, and I was his love interest. I didn't read the whole thing, but skimmed through to find the pages with my name written on them. There were some explicit sexual things written that still make me nauseous to think about. But the worst detail about the book was that my character was murdered. The gravity of the situation weighed in when I realized that this was the book Ed was writing during all of those days in the cafe. While he watched me from across the room, he was depicting my fictional murder. I moved to a different part of Ohio right after this happened and more recently have moved to the West Coast. I no longer fear of my fictional murder turning into reality as I walk around the streets of my grad school campus. For a while, I held onto the book and gifts for evidence in case something ever happened. I never called the police, but what could they have done? I don't know. All I know is that it's over. As always, remember to fuck politeness and advocate for yourself. Emma. Yeah, for real. That's so hard because I don't know what the laws are on harassment from customers. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like it's usually your coworkers, in which case they can be disciplined or fired, right? Yeah. I mean, mean, he could be banned from the store, which, like she said, her manager didn't do with everything she presented, even though it was extremely predatory. Yeah. That's so scary. That is so incredibly scary that this crazy person wrote a book titled it with her name, and then gave it to her. And it's published. It's a real book. She sent a link to this book, 
And she was like, I mean, it's it's kind of like a PS to us and I won't read it just for privacy reasons, but like there, it's a real book and it's, I looked at it and it's incredibly scary. Actually mm-hmm. sent shivers down my spine when I saw that it was actually, I mean, I 100% believed her while I was reading it, obviously, but seeing the book like actually in a place where you can like get this book, I was like, oh my God. Uh, Stalkers are like a different level of scary and crazy because you don't know what they're going to do. And they're clearly unhinged. Yeah, unhinged in the uncertainty. I can't imagine the feeling of like your heart dropping when you read about the fact that your your quote-unquote character in this book was murdered. Each week I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim, that if people can relate and get comfort from it if it can help someone as one of my guests said there's so much going on in the world we should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better each one is a superhero not because they have special powers it's because in spite of what they've gone through they keep on going i find them remarkable please listen to chatholic and hear their stories Yeah, what did he think you were going to do? Like, read the book and then go marry him? I mean, like, he's a crazy person. ridiculous. Yeah. Do you still have the ring? I don't know. I hope she made some money off that. <laughs> yeah, right? At the very least. That'd be good. He, like, made her move states, or at least made her move within Ohio. Yeah. Right? I think the... I don't know what motivated the West Coast move, but... Well, she said her grad school, so I'm assuming it's okay. because of a school. Probably for that first, but also it was nice yeah. to uh, get out. A good perk, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, I'm very glad that you're okay. Yeah. Love ya. Talk to you in the Discord, girly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you want to move on to story number two? Uh, I do. Our second story comes from Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. I've been trying to decide what story to send in, but when you asked for Uber stories, I thought, I've got those because I was an Uber driver. Uh Uh-oh. I drove for Uber and sometimes Lyft for several years in the Kansas City area, mostly on weekend nights. That meant I was generally either taking people to bars or home from bars. I can't say how many times women would get into my car and then immediately tell me how relieved they were that I was a woman. They would tell me about all the creepy dudes who drive them around and how safe they felt with me. Often they would ask me if I could drive them home at the end of the night or tell their friends about me. It breaks my heart about how excited women are to have female drivers. It's very true. I'm always stoked to have a woman a woman driver. Yeah, I know. I'm not... I, I don't un- fully understand the situation, but whenever there's uh, just a sketchy guy picking me up, and I, it, like, doesn't feel good anyway, and I'm not as, like... Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Yeah. So, I can't imagine how that is. Uh, yeah. The worst situation I was in was fairly early on in my driving with Uber. I picked up a group of very all caps drunk middle-aged men from their home and took them to taco bell and back it was after 1 a.m and they brought a child with them who was the daughter of the man next to me in the front seat she sat way in the far back during the whole ride the men said very nasty things to me propositioning me disgusting the little girl their kid is in the car yeah scumbags yeah real bad The little girl, thinking they meant a fun slumber party, also tried to convince me to spend the night. The man in the front seat tried multiple times to touch me. Not knowing what to do and wanting to spare the child, I calmly kept removing his hand. I dropped them off, immediately reported them to Uber, and drove home crying. That was the last time I ever tried to make myself look nice. I stopped wearing makeup and wore frumpy t-shirts and hoodies. Shortly after this, Uber added an emergency button on the main screen for situations like this when you don't feel safe picking up your phone to call 911, but need that help. The button notifies your local emergency service and sends your location. I also used Find My Phone with both my husband and mother so they could watch me throughout the night. Sorry this was so long. It was not. You're fine. (laughs) I have lots of bonkers stories, but this was the scariest. That is so scary. I mean, having men in your car, I mean, first of all, that you're in your own car, they're in your car, and they're saying disgusting things to you, putting their hands on you. And there's a child in the car, which is just such an uh, an added layer of like disgusting. Yeah, 
I mean, that's just so fucking invasive. Yeah. Like. Incredibly scary. And unnerving because, I mean, what are you going to do? There's like multiple men in the car. I know. That sounds like a nightmare. Truly. And when she talked about how after that situation, she stopped wearing makeup and like wore frumpy clothes. That just made me so sad. Mm -hmm. You know, because I, I get it. I've been there. Like not wanting to attract any unwanted attention. Like you wear like baggy clothes and you just like try to make yourself like almost look like a man. And I've seen videos of women who are like, I need to go outside tonight and walk my dog and like let them pee. But it's like the middle of the night and I live in a city and they literally dress like they're men. They dress like they're undercover men in big hoodies and hats and they like cover their faces. And like the fact that that needs to happen is so sad and so scary. And like being an Uber driver must have been insane, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm just sure like the regular day-to-day kind of sucks because it's just a bunch of belligerent drunk people, no? Yeah, because she said she was driving weekend nights. So it's like almost entirely drunk people, I'm sure. So I'm sure it sucks already, but there's that extra... I mean, I'm sure Risk. I'm sure part of it could be entertaining. Like it's it's kind of a social job, kind of like bartending or serving like you're dealing with, you know, people and stuff like that. But it's just the added layer of having them in your own personal space and being vulnerable behind the wheel and not knowing yeah. who's getting into your car. That just is a little scary. And I'm, I'm glad that you're safe and OK and that there's now this emergency button and there's, I'm sure, other protocols in place. But yeah. I, it's just spooky, you know? Yeah. Would you want to finish off this little bit of the message? Because she... Yeah, she she had a little after the story. She said, in, in 2017, at a bar near my house, a Lyft driver named Antonine Rostin was attacked by the boyfriend of the woman who called for the ride. Rostin was shot twice in the head and survived. Yeah, that's insane. Oh, my God. Also, in 2018, Teresa Meitel, who drove for Z-Trip here in Kansas City, was shot by a rider like 20 times and survived holy shit wow drivers aren't always safe either that's terrifying i can't believe they survived 20 times and twice in the head yeah i mean you would think those are both death sentences and then she said stay safe out there and always check your driver out before you get into their car that's very true always always check and also if you have a good ride and they're not creepy tip them because they have to deal with crazy shit like this you know? And they don't make enough money, I'm no, sure. No, seriously. And you know what? If you see them and you gotta say no, fuck them. Oh, you don't have to be polite. Yeah. Again, with this whole, you know, fuck politeness thing, I mean... We're gonna emphasize it again, though. Yeah. Take care of yourself. You can be rude. I, I'll allow it, you know? Yeah. You'll um, never see him again, probably. No, probably not. Shall we move on to number three? Let's move on. Okay. So this next story is from Beth. And I originally got an email from her asking if I would like her to send me the story of the time that she accidentally shot her ex-husband through the neck. (laughs) And I said, yeah, yes, Beth, I would like to read that story. Oh my God. So then she sent it and this is her story. Okay. So here's a little background. I was born in Fairbanks, Alaska and have lived here my whole life. Back in around 1989 or 1990, Brandon came to Fairbanks from New Mexico with the plan of being a wilderness guide. He was 22 to 23, and I was 17 to 18 at the time. We met through some mutual friends and started seeing each other, which quickly turned into an exclusive relationship. We were together over most of the winter, about six months, which seemed like a long time to my teenage mind. In the spring, he was leaving to go about 200 miles north to a tiny town called Bettles. When I say tiny, I mean about 50 year-round residents. This tiny little blip on the map is north of the Arctic Circle and can only be accessed by small plane. He was headed to Bettles to work for an outfitting company that did wilderness excursions into the Brooks Range. The Brooks Range is the northernmost extension of the Rocky Mountains and is massive and very, very remote and is very difficult to access. The outfitting company he was going to work for did canoeing and backpacking trips as well as dog sledding trips in the winter. It was run by a couple who were very religious. When it came time for him to go, he wanted me to come with him, but they would not allow it because we weren't married. So we got married. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Beth, rock and roll. That's metal. (laughs) Yeah. So here's the story. Before we went to Bettles, he had planned to help out a friend by staying at a remote lake called 
Chandelar Lake, I hope I'm saying that right, Chandelar Lake, for 10 days while the lake's only resident traveled to Fairbanks with his wife for medical reasons. The reason there was one resident at the lake and needed a house sitter was because it is a national weather station checkpoint and the weather needed to be called in every day using a CB radio, which was powered by a 12 volt car battery. We decided to make this stay at the lake into a makeshift honeymoon. The only way to get to this lake is again by small plane. It has a runway with a runway light, just one runway light because of its status as a weather checkpoint, and the runway and the lights are maintained by some government entity. Because of this, there is a generator house. This is an actual building with a generator inside and is probably 10 by 10 feet with a massive generator running at all times. This becomes relevant later in the story. We flew out of another blip of a town named Wiseman. Once we landed at the lake, there was an approximately half-mile walk to get to the cabin. This was a tiny cabin with no water or electricity and an outhouse, which is common up here, especially in remote areas. We hauled all of our shit to the cabin and settled in. Suffice it to say, there wasn't much to do there. We canoed around the lake, and it was surrounded by mountains covered in doll sheep, so we spent a good amount of time watching them through binoculars. I don't know how long we'd been there at this point, but we were starting to get bored, and this is where the story really begins. We found an old 22 rifle in the shed and decided it would be fun to do some target shooting. We found an old piece of plywood and set it up on the shore of the lake. I taped cupcake papers on it to use as targets, and we established some sort of a firing line. Maybe some sticks or a line in the sand, I don't really remember. The lake shore was just a sandy gravel strip, maybe 20 to 25 feet between the water and the brush. The brush was thick. For perspective, the way the target was set up, you would have the water on your right while facing it. We started taking turns firing at the targets, and each time someone took their shot, they would go up to the target to check. At some point, he decided to go check his target, and then rather than coming back behind the firing line, he decided to go off into the brush. This was a bad decision on his part, and continuing to shoot was a bad decision on my part. We both knew better. I was raised by a father who was a gun enthusiast and had learned gun safety at an early age. We even had a firing range on the property where I grew up. It was unbelievably stupid of us to do this, and he realized it pretty quickly, deciding to come out of the brush and tell me it was a bad idea. At this point, I was already aiming at the target, finger on the trigger. This is where things went very, very wrong. I made a huge mistake at that moment. He startled me when he came out of the brush, and I made one huge life-changing mistake. Instead of taking my finger off the trigger and moving my hand away from the gun, I moved the gun away from my hand. It happened to be pointing directly at him as I did this, and my finger brushed the trigger. It went off. I saw him grab the back of his head and literally throw himself to the ground. I didn't understand what was happening, and he yelled, You fucking shot me in the head! I seriously thought he was joking because he was like that, joking around all the time. But he didn't get up, and he didn't say anything else. I threw down the gun and went running over to him. His eyes were closed, and I could see blood seeping onto the ground. This was not a joke. I straddled him and put my hands behind his neck, and when I pulled them out, they were dripping with blood. His eyes were closed, and I was slapping him and shaking him. Panic was setting in fast. Suddenly, he opened his eyes and looked at me. I started drilling him on whether he could move his arms and feet, and to both of our amazement, everything worked. He sat up and said, I think I'm okay. At this point, I started evaluating his wounds. There was an entrance wound on the right side of his neck, just below his ear, and an exit wound on the left side in roughly the same place. It was Ooh, yeah. what it went through his neck on both sides ear to ear. Yeah. And it didn't hit his spine. Yeah, I guess. Or his neck. No, that's his what they neck said. Spine. Yeah, his right. His the top of his spine. Yes, dude. And it, he can breathe. I'm just amazed. I'm like, how does it happen? Well, we'll we want to keep going. Yeah, you can learn about it. <laughs> Will you shut up? <laughs> it was a through and through. Blood was pouring out of each wound, but there was no spurting, just constant oozing. I ripped off my shirt and wrapped it around his neck to try to slow the bleeding. And then you choke him. Could you imagine? (laughs) Just like... (laughs) No, 
not quite. So we had to think quickly at this point. I was already panicking and we were trying to decide what to do. It was decided that I would go back to the cabin and use the CB radio to try to contact somebody in Wiseman. When I got to the cabin and started trying to call, I was hysterical and not making any sense. No one was answering and I was getting more and more frantic. This was our only communication out of the lake and no one would be coming to get us for another few days. I saw something out of the corner of my eye and realized that Brandon was strolling into the cabin. This motherfucker had just been shot through the neck and he got up and walked to the cabin. He was eerily calm. He took note of my hysteria and took the radio from me to start to call in a little bit more coherently. I don't know how much time had passed, but no one had answered and the battery was getting low, so we decided we needed another plan. We decided, or rather he decided, since I couldn't think straight, that I should go to the runway and shut down the generator in hopes that it would somehow be noticed, although I can't imagine how that would happen and someone would have to fly out and fix it, at which time we would be rescued. There are worse plans. It wasn't a particularly rational plan, but it was all we had. I was covered in his blood, and though I should not have been trusted with a firearm at this point, the trail was half a mile long, and there are bears and other creatures, so I took the gun with me. I got to the generator house, and when I walked inside, I realized I had no idea how to shut it down. There were dials and switches all over the walls. I noticed two large pull-down switches and figured it had to be one of them, so I picked one and pulled it. Lo and behold, the generator shut off. I thought about trying to write help in the sand, but realized how pointless that would be. Who was going to fly over? And if they did, how were they going to see little scratches in the sand? So after turning off the generator, I headed back to the cabin. As I was running, I had no idea what I was going to find when I got back. He'd been bleeding pretty heavily, and I had no idea if he was going to be alive. My thoughts were all over the place. I surmised that if he died, no one would believe it was an accident and I would probably spend the rest of my life in jail for murder. I had been a troubled teenager and they'd think I'd just lost my shit finally. I was terrified of losing him and terrified of the consequences. It was a very dark moment in my life. When I got back to the cabin, he was very much alive. He was sitting on the floor, leaned against the wall, reading a magazine. <laughs> I was shocked, but I don't think I felt so relieved and grateful to the universe before or since that moment. He had made contact with someone while I was gone. He somehow managed to get a hold of a trucker on the highway, and the trucker had called Coldfoot, which is the only truck stop between Fairbanks and Prudhoe. Coldfoot had been called the Alaska State Troopers, and the troopers had called the Army Medevac Service. <laughs> We were going to be rescued. That is a big, long chain of people that needed to be called. Yo, but shout out the army medevac. Like, yeah, that's super lucky that they're that far out there or that they'll come to you. Yeah, this is a big, long story if you couldn't already tell, but I'm, we're getting there. We're here for it. Yeah, it's super fun. So in the interim, we heard a plane flying overhead and thought maybe they'd sent a plane rather than the chopper. So once again, I set off for the runway carrying the gun. It turns out that it wasn't the medevac, rather two guys from Wiseman who had heard that something was going on and decided to check it out. Mind you, they had no idea what was actually going on, just that a man had been shot. They can see me from the air running up the trail, carrying a rifle, so I can only imagine what they must have been thinking. I met them at the runway and they drew on me. I had two pistols pointed at me. I explained what was going on and they believed me, so they left. To this, so they left. <laughs> to this day, I really don't know why they just left us there like that, but that's what happened. I went back to the cabin again. Jesus, if she was actually like a murderer and she was like, uh, I promise, I just, it was an accident. They're like, oh, okay, sounds good to me. I don't know. She probably sounded like genuinely frantic. Yeah, I'm sure. But that's just hysterical. She's like, yeah, they left. Okay. That is such a weird thing. They just heard that somebody was shot and they're just like, we're going to go check it out. Yeah, right. With a plane? Yeah. Well, that's are... what they said the only way to access this place is, like, by plane, right? I know, but, like, who are these people? I have no like, idea. Like, they just travel by plane. Right. All the time? Exactly. I don't know how long we sat there waiting for the chopper, but it had been at least a couple of hours. I finally heard it coming and ran outside, assuming they would make an immediate landing, but no, they were just flying around the mountains like sightseers. Finally, they landed, and I went running up to them. Up until that point, they didn't realize there was another person involved. 
By the time they got the message, they believed a man had shot himself. They thought they were coming to get a body. This is why they were flying around the mountains. They weren't in a hurry, and they were fucking looking at all the sheep, enjoying the view. Insert eye roll. Well, I mean, you gotta look at the sheep. I mean, I know you would. I know, I, but like, <laughs> also, this is such a weird, this is like a classic telephone thing, where by the time it gets to them, it's a completely it's different a story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I understand that given their knowledge, there wasn't a huge sense of urgency. Once they saw me, they went into full-on freak-out medic mode, rushing into the cabin, demanding to know where the victim was. He was still reading a magazine, acting like it was no big deal. They loaded him on a stretcher and started doing all the things. Normally, they don't... <laughs> all the, <laughs> all things. the things. You know, just all the things. Normally, they don't allow extra passengers on the medevac choppers, but I was a terrified 18-year-old girl who just shot my husband, and they couldn't exactly just leave me out there all alone, so they made room for me. And I'm pretty sure you weren't taking no for an answer. <laughs> exactly. I ended up on a cargo net pressed against the ceiling. Good enough. <laughs> pressed against the ceiling? Good. Wait, you're, like, just strapped into the ceiling? Yeah. <laughs> They had to stop and get fuel on the way back, and they stopped in Bettles. The news had gotten around through what I'm sure were many juicy CB radio transmissions, and everyone in Bettles knew Brandon, so we had a little audience when we landed. I was absolutely horrified and have never been more embarrassed in my life. After fueling, we continued on to Fairbanks, which was just another hour or so. When we landed in Fairbanks, we were loaded into an ambulance and rushed to the hospital. They wanted to put him on a stretcher, but he refused and insisted to walking into the ER. The ER had been told ahead of time that they were receiving a gunshot victim, so they were expecting much worse than a man strolling into the emergency room smiling at everyone. <laughs> Did I mention he was a very friendly guy? Is he is he's just like yucking it up? Yeah. As he's walking he was reading in. a magazine. He doesn't give a fuck. They rushed him back and started doing all the hospital things while they <laughs> while they sequestered me in a room with the state troopers where I was grilled about what happened. They were eventually satisfied that it was an accident and I was allowed to see him. After all of the examinations and scans and probes, they realized there was nothing they could do. Absolutely nothing. The shot had gone directly through soft tissue and was basically a puncture wound. It had bled enough to clean the wound and then closed itself off. It wasn't even bleeding anymore. It had barely missed the base of his skull and carotid when it entered, then traveled through the flesh around his spinal cord, missing by an eighth of an inch, and exited out beneath the base of his skull on the other side, missing it by less than half an inch. All they could do was put some neosporin on each hole and cover it with a band-aid. <laughs> You're fucking kidding me. They gave him a couple of Tylenol and a neck brace and tried to keep him overnight, but he refused. My mother lived down the road, so we just went to her house for the night. Yeah, also, they're going to charge you like 10 grand Yeah. for Neosporin and a Band-Aid. Truly. Side notes, we'd only been at her house for an hour or so when we decided he was hungry and wanted a cheeseburger, so we went to Denny's, still in our blood-soaked clothes because we hadn't brought our belongings on the flight, and we got a cheeseburger. No one said anything to us. <laughs> That's Alaska for you. And you know, Denny's is a classy joint. <laughs> Unbelievably, we stayed married for five years and are still friends. I hope you enjoyed this story. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I God enjoyed damn. that. Thank you, Beth. That's so funny to me that nobody asked him any questions. That's insanity. Like, that's all, none of our business. <laughs> that's so crazy. That's crazy they come into Denny's with blood-soaked clothes. Not only do they not say anything to them, but they they don't even call the cops. They're not like, hey, you want to check this one out? They don't even ask a question? Not a single question. They'd be like, where did this come from? <laughs> well, hey, you know what? Denny's... Probably got some good pancakes. I haven't been to Denny's. I've never been to Denny's. Maybe we should go. Mm. Is it a cultural icon? I think it's kind of a... No? I mean, I you wonder if there are... it's kind of a dump? I think... I wonder if there are Denny's stands out there that'll, like, cancel me, but is I think not, it's kind of a dump, isn't it? Is it not the same thing as an IHOP? I think it's worse than IHOP, is it not? Oh, boy. Uh-oh. Let's start a, let's start a conversation. It's the same thing. It's a diner. It's a chain diner. Anyway, let's not... Let's not debate this about Denny's. We've never been on. there. Out of everything that we just heard. Yeah. I, I mean, how lucky that you, like, literally missed everything by... Like an eighth you know, of an inch. Yeah, that's, like... So tiny. A quarter of a fingernail. So tiny. Yeah, I mean... Neosporin uh, and a Band-Aid. You get airlifted, airlifted <laughs> to a hospital, and all you need is Neosporin and a Band-Aid. Yeah, and 
evacuated by the army medics. Yeah. They were just looking at sheeps. They're like, oh, I thought he was dead. <laughs> Oops, sorry. But he was dead. We wanted to see the sheep. I get it. No, I mean, I Chad. Get it. <laughs> you think they're named Chad? I don't know. <laughs> I, I default to... Um, to Chad. I do too. To frat boy whenever it's a male. I do too. You know? I think that's a fair bet. Anyway, thank you, Beth, for your incredible story. I'm so glad that he didn't die. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, for real. Okay, on to the next. I know you wanted to read a long one, so do you want me to... Oh, I'll read this... a shorter one, and then we can go to your longer one. How about that? Because we just did a big one. Okay. Okay. This one is from Sam. Hi, Steph and Alex. I've survived almost drowning and slash or getting hypothermia in a pickup truck during a flash flood and being robbed at gunpoint twice. But today I... Say that again? (laughs) I've survived almost drowning and slash or getting hypothermia in a pickup truck during a flash flood and being robbed at gunpoint twice. Twice. But today, I'd like to tell you a little bit of a this lighter is not story. Even about those. Nope. A little bit of a lighter story. Okay, Sam. I see what you did there. I was five when my dad, Pat, died in a car accident. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I went to stay with my mom's parents, my Graham and Pops, for a few days while my mom sorted things out. Graham and Pops had one room in their basement that was finished and was used as a sort of playroom for the grandkids. Graham and I were going down the stairs when a golf ball started bouncing up and down on the basement floor. Not in an erratic motion like you would expect if the golf ball fell from somewhere, but rather straight up and down like someone was bouncing it. After maybe 15 seconds of this, it stopped still on the floor. Not rolling around like if the ball lost momentum, but as if someone set it down. Graham hurried me toward the playroom, and as soon as we walked in, A floor lamp fell over right in front of us. Graham yelled, Pat, stop it, you're scaring us. That was the last thing that happened. I like to think that my dad wanted to make sure to let us know he was still around, and since he was like a big kid himself, didn't realize how scary it was from our perspective. Love your podcast, and thanks for reading. Just keep breathing, you guys. Yeah. Damn, Sam. That's kind of like straight up and down. Yeah. That would freak me out. Well, yeah, that's why Graham was like, you're scaring us, Pat. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. Yeah, and then it was over. Yeah, but it's like sweet, you know, like a a family member saying, hey, still here. Still here. Yeah, that was a sweet one. I was like, I thought it was going in a different direction. No, it was it was just a a ghost. I I enjoyed it. Yeah, fair enough. Well, thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Shall we go back to a big one? Also, Sam, if you would like to send in any of those aforementioned stories um i think that they're probably probably good enough oh i would love to hear them if you feel comfortable sharing send them in yeah for sure this one is another long one by the way we have quite a few long ones although this is our, our last big one but just so you know from brad who is a not so long time listener first time emailer uh, before we get into it, I do want to give a quick trigger warning for a pretty graphic discussion of drug use and attempted suicide. So if you want to skip ahead, please do. Brad says, my tale of survival is not one I've heard you talk about and is a story that you may or may not consider one of survival. For me, my family and close friends, it is very much a survival story and a story that is cathartic for me to tell. Where to begin, he says. How about with a little bit of background? Throughout my life, I have always been what some would call an angry bird or... An angry or irritable person. Where did you put bird? You got bird in there? You just put bird in there. Angry birds. I've always been an angry bird. Angry birds has been laying dormant in my psyche for a decade. For the moment to shine right now. I'm sorry. Throughout my life, I've always been what some would call an angry or irritable person. I'm also kind and caring with a good heart. Having both qualities in my personality caused a lot of internal conflict for me. I was also conflicted by what I was taught by my mother and my stepfather, both in church and at home. If you know anything about the Southern Baptist faith, you know that much of what you do, think, say, feel, or enjoy is considered sinful and worthy of punishment in hell. That's intense. Sounds fun. Yeah, not so much. In the interest of providing a little levity, I have to tell you that a focal point of my quote-unquote sinful nature for my stepfather and mother was my chosen musical taste, heavy metal. 
There were several ceremonies in the backyard to destroy my Metallica and Guns N' Roses CDs that I had obviously not hidden well enough. Anyway, fast forward to me as a young adult. That sucks for you, but is kind of funny. Yes. <laughs> they would destroy your CDs. That's insane. Could you imagine your, your son is just listening to like heavy metal and you're like, it's the devil. Yeah, I know. Oh God, not the devil. <laughs> they go burn him. Yeah. Like, I, I think throwing him out would have sufficed. But, right. You know, the drama. Burn him. <laughs> Mom is the drama. So anyway, fast forward to Brad as a young adult. I was married for a second time and had a young daughter and a stepdaughter. I was a new ER nurse and was working 60 plus hours per week on night shift to support my growing family. My wife did not work, so my income was the only income for our household. My wife and I were struggling in our marriage and were teetering on the edge of divorce. We stayed together, quote, for the sake of the children, and I continued to work five nights a week in the ER. Our marriage was failing, I was exhausted a lot of the time, and was even more angry and irritable. I love my daughter and stepdaughter very much and could not bear the thought of not being with them and raising them in the way I was taught was the only acceptable way to raise children. I was still angry and irritable, as I had been throughout my entire life, and now at a stressful job, failing marriage, and financial difficulties on top of it. That is a hell. Mm -hmm. So stressful. Below is what I call the recipe for our disaster and what followed. Raised to believe that everything I liked or enjoyed was sinful, and to live a Christ-like life was the only way to live, even though that was impossible, in a second failing marriage with two little girls to consider, working myself to death in my first year as an ER nurse, struggling financially, and battling constant internal conflict between my anger, my kind-hearted nature, and my spiritual upbringing. Something was going to give, and it did. Before I tell you what happened, I must preempt this by saying that what happened next was my choice. I chose to cope with my life and my internal battles in this way. No one caused me or made me do what I did. There was a lot of other more productive coping mechanisms that I did not entertain or choose. I take full responsibility for my actions and my choices. I came home from work one morning, and my wife and I had started arguing on our way home from work. Our argument intensified when I got home. I went into the basement and took off my scrubs and put them in the washer. I heard something bang and rattle when I put my scrubs in the machine. I reached in to see what I had left in my pockets, and as I searched my pockets, I found some syringes, some tourniquets, alcohol pads, ink pens, and can you guess what else I found? That's right, a vial of narcotic pain medicine that I had forgotten to waste, or throw away. So, as I'm standing in the laundry room, my wife at the top of the stairs, she and I screaming at each other, I looked at the vial, the syringes, tourniquets, and alcohol pads, and decided that I was going to try to use what I had seen so many people use to dull their pain. I was going to try and use this drug to see if it would help. I drew up the medication and injected it into the back of my arm. 20 minutes later, I felt nothing and all of my problems melted away. I was not angry, I was not irritable, I had no internal or external conflicts, and our argument had faded away into the background. I lay down to sleep that morning with my wife still yelling at me. Nothing mattered and I was happily numb. My drug use quickly developed into an addiction. My wife and I separated and filed for divorce, and my time with my daughters was restricted and I started using more and more. I soon graduated to injecting directly into my veins. Once that happened, my life spiraled out of control, and I had to have the drug every day, all of the time. It was during this time that I met a nurse at the hospital, and we moved in together and were married shortly after I was divorced from my second wife. That is an entirely different story of survival that I can tell at a later date. Over the next four years, I used IV drugs almost every day, and I had an endless supply because I worked in the ER. After the first three years of actively using drugs, I had successfully alienated my daughters and basically anyone that cared about me. One day, I was called into my manager's office before my night shift and was told that the jig was up. They were concerned about the amount of narcotics I was withdrawing from the medication dispensing system. I was caught red-handed, but denied the entire thing. I told them that they were crazy and I wasn't doing anything wrong. Subsequently, I was escorted off the property by security. I was fired the next day. I needed to work to pay bills and, more importantly, child support, so I got a job relatively quickly at another hospital. I told myself I was not going to continue to use and that I was done. I was not. 
Over the next eight months, my use got more and more frequent and my behavior became more and more erratic. At my lowest point, I realized that I could not stop using on my own because I had tried to quit so many times unsuccessfully. So I knew I could not quit and I knew I would eventually get caught again and probably go to prison or I would accidentally overdose and die. So I dropped off my daughter to her mother on a Sunday night and drove to a truck stop. I put a tourniquet on my arm and drew up enough anesthetic to kill an elephant. I started sending goodbye texts to my family and friends and then shut my phone off. I sat in the car and sat and sat and sat. After what seemed like forever, I took the tourniquet off and put the syringe away. I drove home and continued in my active addiction. I was leaving my work one morning and was stopped by my manager, department head, HR, and security. They advised me that I was obviously impaired and that I needed to come with them. I was so relieved that I was finally caught, I did not have to keep looking over my shoulder, waiting to get caught, chasing the drug every day, waiting to get arrested or overdose. I was caught and I could not have been more relieved. I was sent to a rehab facility where I spent time in an inpatient rehab. I began working toward recovery and working to improve myself. I was not permitted to work as a nurse at that point, but was under the supervision of the Board of Nursing and subject to a urine drug screen seven days a week, 365 days a year. My nursing license was ultimately placed on probation, and I was allowed to work in specific areas of nursing as deemed appropriate by the Board of Nursing. I eventually was hired as a nurse by a nursing home to whom I am eternally grateful. From there, I went to work on an inpatient psychiatric unit for two years. After two years, I had completed my mandatory time under supervision by the Board of Nursing, and my nursing license was restored to active status without restriction. A nurse manager position opened in ER and I applied. I was offered the position and went back to the ER as a nurse manager. This was a surreal moment for me because the last time I had been in in ER as a nurse, I had been escorted out of the hospital in handcuffs with the sheriff's department. I worked as a nurse manager in the ER for five years. The last year and a half of that was through COVID. I have since stepped down as a nurse manager and am back at the bedside as a staff RN in the ER. I'm taking care of patients again, and I have been clean and sober for 11 years. I'm still working as an ER nurse, and I'm rebuilding a relationship with my daughter. I'm at the end of my third divorce, and that is for the best, and I consider having the courage to leave that marriage evidence of becoming a healthier, better person. I survived four years of active addiction and did not overdose and die. I did overdose, but always managed to survive it. I speak publicly at my hospital to new nurses and at nursing schools about my experience. I am not ashamed of my experience. It has shaped who I am today and has made me a much better person. Addiction is a very real problem in nursing and in healthcare among healthcare professionals, and I am one of the very lucky ones who survived. There are many more that have not. Thanks for taking the time to read this very long email, and I'm grateful that I'm still able to just keep breathing. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. That's intense. That's a very intense story, but I definitely wanted to include it because it is a very real story of survival. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, I don't know, addiction is just so pernicious. It's such a beast. Yeah, it's so hard to fix or get better. But I loved how he got out of it. I loved the work that he really put in to himself and his you know, addiction and staying sober now for 11 years and getting a good job. And not only that, but like sharing his story and helping other people along the way. I just think it's like really inspirational and really beautiful that he's able to like take this really terrible, ugly thing and turn it into this helpful, inspirational thing. Yeah. It's an incredible feat to go 11 years sober. Hell yeah. And um, yeah. And that's that on that. Hell yeah. Thank you, Brad. Shall we finish off? Let's do it. Okay. This last one is a bit shorter and about a shark. So I wanted to end on this one. This is from Zoe. Hello, I'm Zoe. Hello. Hello. Pronouns are she, her. Nice to meet you. This story was back in 2016. I can't really remember. Anyways, my family and I flew to Florida around the Clearwater area. I was about 12 to 13 years old. I really can't remember. 
Anyways, on the fourth day of vacationing, my mom, dad, younger brother, about 10 years old, and my younger sister, about five or six years old, went to the beach and the water was really hot and the temperature was just right. It seemed like the perfect day to be in the waters. None of us, the kids, were good at swimming, so we always wore life jackets, and my brother and I decided to venture out a little bit farther onto the waves into the waves and my mom held onto some straps onto our life jackets so we didn't float too far away. And all of a sudden, my mom's face just drops. And for context, I was six feet away from her since the strap allowed me to go that far. So I looked to where she was looking and I don't think my young brain could comprehend what was happening, maybe out of shock, and floating in the waters six feet away from me was the biggest, darkest fin. It was a shark. In parentheses, they said, dying inside right now. (laughs) (laughs) And the waves were going into my face and I was just frozen. I was just looking at the fin going up and down closer to me. And my mom just yanked my brother and I by the straps. And I remember getting whooshed back. And the next thing I know, I'm on the land. There was a crowd of people looking at the fin swim to the other sides of the beach. People in the crowd were debating if it was a dolphin or a shark. And standing in the crowd, a woman who worked as a marineologist, and she came up to us and said that the fin in the water was a shark because she worked with sharks. And my dad ran along the shoreline screaming, shark, and people got out of the water. After all of this, we went to the hotel pool. (laughs) And that's it. Your favorite. Yes, that's why I wanted to end on it. Your favorite place. Hell yeah. The hotel pool. Thank you, Zoe. You know, this is so you because when there's an ocean and a pool near the ocean, you will always choose the pool. I'll take man-made. Thank you so much. Love <laughs> me a pool. <laughs> and that's that on that. Thank you so much for all of your stories, you guys. We yeah. had a good time this this round. You know, they were incredibly intense. Yeah, some good stories. Yeah. Um, so if any of you out there listening have stories of your own that you would like to share with us, you know the drill. Send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com and... We will read them on upcoming listener stories episodes. Maybe, probably. Maybe, probably. Who knows? Who knows? Try it out. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to check out all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. Check out our Patreon where you get our regular episodes ad-free a day early or access to the Discord server. And for $5, you get bonus episodes that you get to vote on every single month. Check out our TikTok that is not today podcast or our Twitter that is not today podcast with the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. 